Today on Peace Talks Radio, an 1871 call for mothers to come together to work for peace. Arise, all women who have hearts. Our sons shall not be taken from us. To unlearn all that we have been able to teach them of charity, mercy, and patience. The sword of murder is not the balance of justice. We'll hear the story of the peace proclamation written by Julia Ward Howe and her not-quite-successful effort to start Mother's Day as a peacemaking holiday. It's a testament to the idea itself. Whether there's a connection or not a connection, there is a connection, which is, we need this. Also, a mother of a soldier talks to other mothers about war and puts their comments in her book. Mothers for Peace and Mothers Who've Had to Send Their Kids to War and Experience Its Pain. All today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how we can reduce conflict with others in our homes, schools, workplaces, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. We also look at the work of peacemakers today and throughout history. And today, we mark the connection between Mother's Day and an historic call for peace. In fact, perhaps the first time anyone heard of the notion of celebrating Mother's Day was as a follow-up to a proclamation for peace made in 1871, a bit ironically by Julia Ward Howe, a woman who, some years earlier, during the American Civil War, actually wrote the words to the Battle Hymn of the Republic which became a favorite battlefield song of Union soldiers during the war. This is the family story. Kate Stickley is the great-great-great-great-granddaughter of Julia Ward Howe. She spoke from her home in Brooklyn, New York, to our Carol Boss. She was in the hotel in Washington, D.C., and woke up in the middle of the night, and these words just came to her, and there was a baby in the bassinet next to her that she didn't want to wake up, so she didn't turn the light on. She just kind of stumped around for a pencil and grabbed any kind of paper she could and scrawled the world words down. And, you know, at the time, even though she had been an heiress, she had turned all over money over to her husband, so she was constantly in dire straits financially because she didn't have control over her own fortune. So she sold that piece to the Atlantic Monthly for $5, and later on it um, caught on with the Union Army. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching It's to the 
tune of John Brown's body lies moldering in the grave, and her husband had in fact been one of the people who'd used her money to help fund John Brown's rebellion, which arguably was the catalyst to start the Civil War. Did the two of them, both Julia and her husband Samuel, call themselves or consider themselves abolitionists? Radical abolitionists. Mm -hmm. They had a... um, abolitionist newspaper in Boston, which was pretty rabidly abolitionist and not very popular. Why did she have to support herself? Sure. She um, was an heiress. She had money from her family. And because of the laws of the time and because of the way that their marriage settlement went down, he had access and control of all the money. And in fact, when he died, he left all of her money to her children. So a part of what made my grandmother very much a modern woman was the fact that she was self-supporting, even though she came from arguably a pampered class. That wasn't her circumstance. Um, The other thing is she worked tirelessly in the legislature in Massachusetts to get women to be able to have access to their own income and also to have custody over their children, which in divorce at the time they did not have. So Kate, can you tell us a little bit about what was the impetus, the motivation for Julia's writing of this proclamation? From my understanding, she had just been completely overwhelmed by the war in Europe. And it occurred to her um, that there needed to be something that women could do to make it so that their sons weren't killing the sons of other women. And I think she came at this from the perspective of a suffragette and also the perspective of someone who was preaching a great deal in the Unitarian Church. And so her ethical background prompted her to kind of really depart from what made her famous, that battle hymn, and um, take a different tact. And the war you're talking about um, is the Franco-Prussian War. Correct. And to put this in a little bit of a historical context, uh, the writing of the proclamation actually came, what, not long after the Civil War ended? 1871 was the proclamation. So, oh, some good time later. And during that time, she'd had reason to reflect upon her feelings during the Civil War, much like many people of her time. Whitman is an excellent example of someone who, in the run-up to the Civil War, was very pro-militaristic, but then after seeing that war didn't work, started to reconsider and start to consider other options, and later in life took a completely different tact, which was one of pacifism and peace-building. Kate Stickley is the direct descendant of Julia Ward Howe. We also talked with Jane Smith Bernhardt, an actor from New Hampshire who portrays Julia Ward Howe in a one-woman show. Well, I was part of a more activist, uh, radical peace movement here. I was asked for one demonstration uh, on Mother's Day, I think, to read the proclamation. And um, the more I studied it, the more wholeheartedly I embraced it as a as prophetic and timeless 
um, and certainly reflective of my own deepest desires. So uh, it seemed that each year I tacked on a little bit more um, as I would be asked to do some kind of a presentation for a Mother's Day. Then uh, Kate uh, called me out of the blue one day, and Kate was able to supply some some information that, in fact, has never even been published through her original research at the Harvard Libraries of doing an amazing job of deciphering Julia's inscrutable handwriting. <laughs> so uh, I, I was most fortunate to be able to sort of add here and add there, even up to the last uh, performance. There were more juicy tidbits um, Obviously, as timely, if not more timely today, I say with like a lump in my throat, having driven to where I'm now recording and seeing three fat-bellied gray airliners uh, on their way to or from somewhere overseas with our brothers, our sons, our fathers. Um, and our sisters may be on that plane, too, those planes as well. Absolutely, absolutely, our sisters, our mothers, our daughters. Here now, Jane Smith Bernhardt performing part of her one-woman show as Julia Ward Howe, including what's come to be known as the Proclamation for Peace and Call for a Mother's Day for Peace, written by Howe in 1871. Some five years after the end of our bloody civil war. Word reached us of a new conflagration in Europe. So soon after our own tragedy, a war between France and Prussia was ravaging that great land. The conflict struck me as one of singular savagery and barbarity. The thought quite suddenly presented itself to me. Why do not the mothers of mankind intervene in these matters to prevent the waste of that human life of which they alone know and bear the cost? It seemed an obvious answer. Men having awakened the gods of war, women must put them to bed. And I resolved to issue an invitation to women throughout the world to join together for a conference for peace to be held in London, the capital of the civilized world. To that end, I composed an appeal. Arise then, women of this day. Arise, all women who have hearts whether your baptism be that of water or of tears. Say firmly, we shall not have great questions decided by irrelevant agencies. Our husbands shall not come to us reeking with carnage for caresses and applause. Our sons shall not be taken from us to unlearn all that we have been able to teach them of charity, mercy, and patience. We women of one country will be too tender of those of another country to allow our sons to be trained to injure theirs. 
from the bosom of the devastated earth, a voice comes up with our own. It says, disarm, disarm. The sword of murder is not the balance of justice. Blood does not wipe out dishonor, nor violence indicate possession. As men have oft forsaken the anvil and plow at the summons of war, so now let women leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel. Let them meet together first as women to bewail and commemorate the dead. Then let them solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby our great human family may live in peace, each one bearing after his own time the sacred impress, not of Caesar, but of God. In the name of womanhood and of humanity, I earnestly ask that a general congress of women without limit of nationality may be appointed and held at some place deemed most convenient and at the earliest period consistent with its objects to promote the alliance of the different nationalities, the amicable settlement of international questions, the great and general interests of peace. Another feature of my peace crusade was my desire to institute a holiday to be known as Mother's Day and to be set aside for the advocacy of peace doctrines, a day to pray, sing, strategize, and agitate for peace. For too long, the ambition of rulers has been allowed to barter the dear interests of domestic life for the bloody exchanges of the battlefield. But women need no longer be made party to proceedings which fill the globe with grief and horror. My dream was of a mighty and august congress of mothers which should constitute a new point of departure for the regeneration of society by the elimination of the selfish and brutal elements which lead to war and bloodshed. Indeed, we held Mother's Day celebrations for many years in cities throughout the world, in Rome, Edinburgh, Geneva, Constantinople, London, Paris... Boston, New York. My heart was gladdened recently to learn that a small delegation in Philadelphia still holds its annual Mother's Day celebration. Actor Jane Smith Bernhardt as Julia Ward Howe. More now from Carol Boss's interview with Jane Smith Bernhardt and also with Kate Stickley heard first, the great-great-great-great-granddaughter of Julia Ward Howe. Kate Stickley has done considerable research on her ancestor. 
I want to go back now to the proclamation and um, perhaps see what either one of you think is most powerful in it. And I was thinking about the linking that she made of motherhood, it, its dignities and its responsibilities. Can um, either one of you talk about your sense of this sort of seeing it in a new light, pushing her to uh, appeal to women throughout the world and um, making the connection between motherhood and their responsibilities to protect the human life? Kate? I think that for Julia, she had studied philosophy. She was reading a lot of Plato. She was reading a lot of the ancient Greeks and thinking about not only ourselves as a global community, but ourselves as part of a contextual history. And I think that she had looked back at the history of the Western world that she was familiar with and saw that we kept trying to get to peace through war, and it was becoming simply illogical to believe that what had not worked for centuries was going to miraculously start working. So then I think it occurred to her, why don't we try something completely radical that we've never tried, which is to get peace through peace? I think that it's very important to say that Julia would never repudiate or dishonor any of the service that the brave men and women continue to provide for this country. I think that as part of being a peace builder, you may disagree with war, but I don't think you take a stand against soldiers. And I say this because of the passage that she wrote in her journal on Wednesday, March 22, 1871. So this is from Julia's journal. I confess that I value more these processes of thought, which explain history, than these which arraign it. I would not, therefore, in my advocacy of peace, strip one laurel leaf from the grave so dear and tender in our recollection. Our brave men did and dared the best which a time allowed. The sorrow of their loss was nonetheless brought upon us by those who believed in the military method. It is no injustice to them that I listen while the angel of charity says, Behold, I show you a more excellent way. Come now, let us reason together. This treating of injuries from the higher ground of magnanimity is the action that shall save the world. This is part of her really trying to think about what is it that I mean when I say peace? You know, I mean, all these people have died for us to be able to have the United States of America. Now that, you know, we're in a later day, we can look back at wars that came after her life and think about the same things. So how do you reconcile waging peace with respecting the contributions of people who arguably have helped secure it in one way or another. Jane, did you have something that you wanted to add in terms of um, what you take from Julia's proclamation, Mother's Day proclamation? Well, I I wanted to stress uh, one quote about motherhood, lest those women who have not been mothers feel excluded. Um, she writes, Every woman is not in God's providence a wife, 
and every wife is not a mother, but every true woman has the mother in her. And this grand spiritual motherhood, exerting its influence and watchfulness in all the walks of life, will give every woman a noble part to perform in the great drama of the world. And that also, I think, on the heels of her radical conversion to a different understanding of what it meant to be a woman through the suffrage movement. That a woman uh, was not the ancillary to the man, that she stood before God with equal rights and equal responsibilities. So these were, I think, components in this concept of womanhood and and motherhood, that it's not, um, that motherhood is not an exclusive entity. That's actor Jane Smith Bernhardt, who portrays Julia Ward Howe in a one-woman show. Also, we heard from Kate Stickley, the direct descendant and researcher who studied the life and writings of Julia Ward Howe. We're spotlighting the peace proclamation of Julia Ward Howe, who called for a Mother's Day to celebrate peace in the early 1870s. We'll have more with both of our guests and later conversation with a woman who wrote the book Long Time Passing. Mothers talk about war and terror. It's all ahead on Peace Talks Radio right after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Online with all of our episodes dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. One of the earliest mentions of the idea of a Mother's Day came from activist Julia Ward Howe, who happened to write the words to the Battle Hymn of the Republic during the Civil War, but worked tirelessly for peace after the horror of the war, and issued a proclamation for peace in 1871, calling for a Mother's Day for peace, to make it a day when mothers made a statement against the futility of war all around the world. Our Carol Boss is talking with two women connected in different ways to Julia Ward Howe. Jane Smith Bernhardt is an actor who portrays Howe in a one-woman performance, and Kate Stickley, Howe's blood relative, her great-great-great-great-granddaughter, in fact. Bernhardt is at a studio near her home in New Hampshire. Stickley is at her home in Brooklyn, New York. Here once again is Carol Boss. I've read different accounts of how Mother's Day, as we know it in, in this country, began. It seems in various sources it, it, it talks about um, Anna Reeves Jarvis in West Virginia. And this is um, in the same period as Julia in the 1850s. And she founded Mother's Day work clubs to improve sanitary and health conditions in a few cities. And 
there was the goal of trying to lower infant mortality. And they also tended to the wounded soldiers of both sides during the Civil War. And then I read that in the post-war years, she and other women organized Mother's Friendship Day picnics and other events, and that about the time Julia issued her proclamation, Anna Reeves Jarvis initiated a Mother's Friendship Day for Union and Confederate loyalists across West Virginia. So, Kate, I, I think you've told me Um, when we've talked before, that you didn't find any mention of Anna Jarvis in the writings of Julia. I didn't. But isn't it so wonderful that there's this sort of resonance? You know, when a time has come, it gets picked up by so many different strands. And I think that it is a testament to the power of the idea itself that whether it's Julia going to Europe with her Peace Brigade, whether it's Anna Jarvis doing her work, which was so important to get to heal the country after such a brutal, you know, brother against brother, family against family, sister against sister conflict. And it's a testament to the idea itself that it just sprang up, whether there's a connection or not a connection, there is a connection, which is we need this. And I just am so glad that both of them, in their own ways, made such incredible contributions. And then it was Anna's daughter, who was also named Anna, who's the driving force behind the official establishment of Mother's Day. And I read that she swore at her mother's gravesite to dedicate her life to her mother's project and establish a Mother's Day to honor mothers living and dead. Historically, what happened is she did a lot of work. She she took to campaigning, and in 1912, West Virginia became the first state to adopt an official Mother's Day. And then in 1914, the U.S. Congress passed a joint resolution, and President Woodrow Wilson signed it, establishing Mother's Day. But it actually emphasized women's role in the, in the family and not as activists in the public arena. Well, but isn't that so exciting Mm -hmm. that Julia said, let us as mothers come and make our contribution. And Anna Jarvis said, let us as daughters come and continue to carry that flag. And here I am as a great, 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 great granddaughter. And it's still the momentum still alive. Both of those women planted such a strong seed that we continue to keep their memory alive and pass it down to our children and our children's children. Yeah, that's beautiful. And as a side note, Anna Jarvis, the daughter, became apparently increasingly concerned over the commercialization of Mother's Day, the selling of the cards and the flowers. What a great way to disempower a strong and incredibly noble belief than to commercialize it. And don't we see that all Mm -hmm. the time nowadays, where you have something which says we need to make a difference in the world, and it becomes a T-shirt for sale for $15. And it's just, you know, an attempt to to take an idea and capitalize on it to make it less potent. But it doesn't work. The idea is the idea, and it, it stays the same, whether they, you know, whether Hallmark tries to take it over or not. We all continue at some level to really push this idea of, family and commitment and change and evolution and, dare I say it, such a dirty word, love. Jane Smith-Bernhardt, in your 
portrayal of Julia Ward Howe and your one-woman performances. What have audience reactions been and, and the re- relevancy for them of her life and her writings for today? Are they surprised to hear some things that they perhaps didn't know before, and do they wonder why they hadn't heard about Julia before? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, There's still a lot of people who don't know, and that's why this program is such a wonderful thing, and I hope it reaches a lot of people, because there are a lot of people that don't get the, uh, haven't heard that connection and would want to. My gosh, this is not some cut-and-paste you know, love you, Mom. This is a call to um, galvanize the world. This is a call to transform. This is a call to leap forward. This is a call to heal. Kate, I think you have a, a couple of more quotes that you um, found in your in the journal entries uh, of Julia from about 1871, and there was one on how to achieve peace. Mm-hmm. Monday, May 22nd, 1871. Let no civilized nation from henceforth and forever admit or recognize the instrumentality of war as worthy of Christian society. Let the fact of human brotherhood be taught to the babe in his cradle. Let it be taught to the despot on his throne. Let it be the basis and foundation of education and of legislation, the bond of high and low, rich and poor. How do you interpret that uh, for our times today? I'm in a master's program to become a teacher, and I can't think of a greater honor than to be able to work with the young people of today to examine these critical issues of peace, not only you know from person to person, but how we treat the land, how we take care, how we're stewards of the world that you know we've been entrusted to protect and preserve. And I think that education and legislation are the most powerful weapons. And again, I think that it's possible that that's being commoditized, much like Mother's Day. Instead of actually having discussions in the classroom, one could argue that we're, I don't know, selling tests to kids and taking away their right to free thought and free ideas. And I'm going to devote the rest of my life to making sure that doesn't happen in the classrooms that I have been honored to be a part of. Have there been moments when either of you have researched uh, this, that you had an emotional moment, a moment when you felt like you were really touching this woman, Julia Ward Howe? I would bet it's true for both of you, but, but Kate, yes, researching your ancestor. Um. When I was 13, I had a vision of a boat, and it was just pure happiness. And it sort of has guided me for my entire life. This crazy vision, it's a joke in my family. Hey, Kate, does your boat come in? So when I first started researching Julia, I, um, I was a young woman. I was struggling to make it in New York, and I was at a job I hated, and I'd just gotten paid, and I thought, you know, if that paycheck hit the bank, I'm going to go to Harvard, and I'm going to actually look at her journals. Sure enough, the paycheck had hit the bank. I got on a $20 bus up to Cambridge, and I got there, and I went into the library, and I asked for the journals, and the librarian 
who just scared me stiff because she was so fancy and I was so not, said, there are 20 notebooks and they're in the basement. Would you like them all? And she said, remember, you can say yes. And I said, yes, yes, I want them all. So she brought them up and she wheeled them on this wooden cart. And there are all these beautiful notebooks, the physical notebooks that my great-grandma touched. And I thought, where do I start? And because I'm not very imaginative, I said, okay, I'll just start with the one that isn't the same shape as the others. So I picked the biggest book. And I said, oh, well, where do I start? I said, well, let me pick today's date. And I turned to the page to see if she'd had an entry for the same date as the day I was in Cambridge. There was an entry. She had not written a thing. It was a picture of a boat. <gasps> I'm sorry. Yeah. I, um, I definitely felt a connection at that moment. That gave me a shudder. Kate Stickley is the direct descendant of Julia Ward Howe, who wrote the Mother's Day Proclamation for Peace in 1871. She's speaking to us from her home in Brooklyn. Jane Smith Bernhardt performs a one-woman show as Julia Ward Howe. She spoke to us at WCSA in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So thanks to both of you for talking to us on Peace Talks Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carol. When we return in a minute, author Susan Gallimore, who wrote the book Long Time Passing, Mothers Talk About War and Terror. She talked with many mothers from both here in the U.S. and in conflict zones around the world about how they felt having their children on the battlefield, how some felt about living with war in their own countries. Right after this break. I'm Paul Ingalls. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Coming up at the end of our program, how you can help keep this program on the air and online. We're online with much more about this and all of our other shows at peacetalksradio.com. Visit us at peacetalksradio.com. Today, a mother's theme, and now we turn to a mother whose son caught her quite by surprise when he came home one day from college saying he'd enlisted in the U.S. Army in the late 1990s. He wound up in Afghanistan and then Iraq, and his mom, Susan Gallimore, went to Iraq to deliver him a message. And then she wound up writing the book Long Time Passing, Mothers Talk About War and Terror. Our Carol Boss talked with Susan Gallimore from her home in Alameda, California. So, how did how did you feel? Did your your son come to you one day and say, "Hey, I'm 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 joining up"? 
Yeah, um, you know, I, again, I came to the United States as a young adult, and I really wasn't around for the Vietnam era and all of the um, protests against that. I just heard about it from afar. But uh, so it never occurred to me that my son was fodder for the United States military, that the recruitment process was so intense here. And um, I never expected him to go into the military. It was just not something that I thought my son would do. And in fact, he was in college when he um, enlisted. And I think he just kind of had a day one day when he was he was studying Chinese and decided, gee, you know, this is kind of boring. You know how it is for young people. And um, he came home and said that he had enlisted already. And it was it was quite a stressful time. And I worked on him for some time to try and get him to change his mind. But... Um, he seemed quite determined. He was determined. And um, he went into the military. He then became an army ranger, and then he became a special forces medic. So he quickly differentiated himself from um, the folks that you know were um, arguing against the war and went in and made the best of what he what he did and he liked it because again he you know found a way, a path really to um, do what he wanted to do there which was become a medic. Mm -hmm. So how long after he enlisted was he deployed to Afghanistan? And that was back in 2003. Yeah, he was, he actually enlisted in 1999. So it was pre-war. And I talked to him about, gee, you know, um, the United States has a history of kind of every time there's a new president, you have a like total new slate and you never know what's going to happen. At the time, Clinton was in office. Don't assume that the next president won't get us into war. And he was, oh, we'll, war will never happen. And that's something I have heard over and over and over again from young people. Oh, there won't be a war. Oh, war will never happen. And uh, so, of course, he went in um, and he was deployed to Afghanistan pretty much right off the right off the bat. And he was there for, I think it was six months. As the service continued, what was it like for you day to day? It was really, really tough. I didn't know any other mothers in the in the military at all, and um, I was a single parent, so I didn't really have a spouse to lean on uh, about it. And um, I was, you know, working full time and all of that, and it was very stressful on me because I was dealing with, um, you know, clients. I, I was working as a uh, internet consultant, and so I had to deal with corporate clients, and uh, you know, some of them were companies like Chevron, which was, in my opinion sort of at the root of the problem of the war. Um, and uh, so I was having a lot of trouble that way, a lot of nightmares. And one night I just woke up and I thought, I just can't continue this way. I need to find other mothers who are going through the same thing. And that's what I started doing at that point. And a little later I started um, training to be a GI rights counselor. So Susan, talk to us about your decision to visit your son in Iraq. Uh, I I would think that's highly unusual for a mother to visit her child on a military base in a country with whom we're at war. So why did you decide to well, do this? Well, as I as I just mentioned, I was looking for other mothers to talk to about you know how they were dealing with their sons and or daughters being in the military, and what I came across very quickly was a real lack of understanding about what was happening over there. And um, I had lived in the Middle East prior to coming to the United States. I lived in Israel slash Palestine for a year and a half. And um, so I knew a lot about how the systems worked there, at least in that part of the country, uh, of the Middle East. And um, 
I just felt like there was a huge ignorance about what war actually was and how it was affecting these other people. That was the other thing I found, that the mothers were very much focused on my kid, my kid, my kid, and I was too. But I also recognized that there were a lot of other people, a lot of other mothers involved in this who were not getting their voices out at all. And um, I also wanted to tell my son that in war situations, people do things that they become ashamed of later. And those that kind of shame is what wears you down over time. And I know that I'd never said that to him. I'd argued with him about not going to the military and so forth, but I'd never actually told him why I was so much against uh, him, him enlisting. And so it became uh, really important to me to do that. And I looked around and I discovered a delegation of women that was going over there. And I joined the delegation and we went via uh, Jordan and then drove from Jordan to Baghdad. So it's not like you showed up at the base one day, is it? No, I did everything I needed to do. Uh, when I Once I got to Iraq, I met a few other journalists there, and one of them in particular was working around the area that my son was based on, which was Balad, and north of um, north of Baghdad in what was then called the Sunni Triangle. And so he told me you know, what I needed to do, and I contacted the public affairs officer at the base, and I told her that I was intending to come at such and such a day, at such and such a time, and that I wanted to see my son. She never acknowledged my the receipt of my email, but I you know, emailed her again. I said, I will be there. And so I got a driver, and that's what I did. I showed up at the base. But they had been forewarned. Because it's a Sunni triangle, I had to wear a hijab, a covering on my head. And at first I got out of the car and walked to the soldiers at the at the gate. And um, they told, they like put their guns on me and told me to get back in my car. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm here. I, they no, I'm here. I'm an American. And I showed them my passport and took off my hijab. And at that point, everything changed. It was like, oh, wow, you're here? What are you doing here? Gee, I wish my mom would come visit me. It was that kind of thing. It was a totally different moment. From one moment, they were aggressors. And the next moment, they were very welcoming. How did your son feel about you coming to see him? Was it a complete surprise or did you? No, no I, I had told him prior to that. No, I wasn't about to ambush him. Uh, I told him that I was coming. He told me I shouldn't come, that it was too dangerous and so forth. And um, when I got there, he was very accommodating. He showed me around the section of the base that we were on. And we basically just talked a bit and... Um, uh, you know, he then left, and I'm pretty sure he got ribbed quite a bit that um, night. Did you get to deliver the message you wanted to deliver to him? I did. I did, yeah. And he was receptive. Well, he just kind of, you know, I mean, he was in one world, and I was in another world, and so he just, like, let me talk, and we didn't argue or anything. All of that was done. I mean, he was in the military. Susan Gallimore is the author of A Long Time Passing, Mothers Speak About War and Terror. She's speaking to us from her home in Alameda, California. You made the decision that you were going to take some time over different intervals, it sounds like, to travel and interview mothers, it sounds like mostly in war zones, mothers of soldiers and bombers, I I take it. Were there common threads running through most of the stories? Uh, the common thread, of course, is trying to keep their, you know, children safe and to try and, you know, make sure that they just get out of this in one piece. Um, I did talk with other mothers, American mothers, whose kids had been killed, um, with some whose kids have been severely maimed, um, and a few whose kids got out apparently whole. Um, and 
But when they were over there, they were writing letters home to their parents. And I share some of those letters in the book because I feel like um, the parents were saying to me, gee, you know, there's a real change in who my kid is is becoming in this thing. And um, at the first, the letters were, you know, very chatty about what was going on. And then later they were much more um, cautious about what they were saying or they were being sort of overtly racist about it. So um, there's a whole range of people. And um, again, in the United States, it's different in, to what goes on in Israel. In Israel, everyone is conscripted. In the United States, there's a choice so-called, right? You're a volunteer. And so the people that tend to go into the military in the United States either have some romantic notion about war or are what we call the poverty draft, the young people who don't really have other options. They're not going to go to college. Um, they need to get some skills, and they think the military will be the place to do it. So I talk to a lot of those kinds of parents also. I'm going to guess that in these stories, and a lot of the stories, there was a lot of expression of grief, of terror, of fear. Did you get to talk to um, folks who, mothers who lost their children? Yes, I did. I got to talk with folks who had lost their children in war and some who had lost their children to suicide after they'd come back. There was Jeffrey. Um, Jeffrey's parents um, made sure that his name was remembered, but Jeffrey had been in Iraq and um, he had been forced to shoot a couple of Iraqis. And um, the way that happened was actually very similar to the thing that happened in Mai Lai in Vietnam, um, except on a much smaller scale. Um, the His comrades, uh, Jeffrey's comrades, were telling him to shoot this guy, and he hesitated. He didn't want these two men, and he didn't want to shoot them. But eventually he did because he was urged to. And um, he then took their dog tags and he came home and he completely went off the rails. He was drinking. He couldn't talk to his parents um, about any of this because they basically didn't understand what he was going through. But he also wasn't getting any help from the Veterans Affairs uh, uh, Veterans Administration. And so um, eventually he hanged himself in his garage and his father found him. But he had done it in such a profoundly... Um, just touching way, he had spread a series of photographs in a half circle, one of um, and put these dog tags of these Iraqi men down, and he had you know put some photographs of himself as a kid with his parents and so forth, and then he he hanged himself, and um, he hanged himself basically I think because he wasn't able to work through what he had done, and he wasn't getting any help. And his parents, again, were very supportive of him, but, you know, he couldn't really talk to them, it sounded like, about what he had seen and what he had done. And that was a fairly common theme, I have to say. Um, did, you, did you get to talk, so you talked to his mother? I talked to both of his parents, yeah. When I did my book tour, I was in Boston, and I invited them to come and speak, and they did. And they were still, it was um, at least a year or two after he had died, and they were still trying to grapple with what had happened, what they had done wrong, what it, you know, why this had happened. Um, uh, his father talked to me about how one night, a couple of days before Jeffrey killed himself, he had, he was a big boy or big man, you know, six foot, and his father was a big man too. But he said he came and sat in his father's lap and his father put his arms around him and Jeffrey just cried and cried and cried. He said it was like he was, you know, a year old again. 
And his father, you know, comforted him as best he could. But again, how do you deal with that? What do you do when your child is so profoundly disturbed? Susan Gallimore is the author of A Long Time Passing, Mothers Speak About War and Terror. And she's speaking to us from her home in Alameda, California. Susan, tell us about your title, A Long Time Passing, and what that means. So, as you know, Long Time Passing is Pete Seeger's music, and in fact, I think I have a little paragraph of it in the book. Where have all the, where have all the soldiers gone? Long Time Passing. Where have all the soldiers gone? They've gone to graveyards, every one. Oh, when will they ever learn? I use that as a Pete Seeger dedication in my book. And um, it just, you know, it's a funny thing. When you're under a lot of stress, as you are when your children or your child is at war, and you're going through these nightmares all the time, you kind of have these flashes of inspiration. And I mentioned earlier that uh, when my son was still in Afghanistan, I um, woke up and I thought, I just can't continue this way. I have to find other people that are going through the same thing, and I have to do something more. And that's when I started thinking about uh, the, the long time passing, uh, that song. And that that was always going to be the title of my book. <laughs> um, so... It has to do with, you know, a lot of pieces coming together in a very specific way, which often happens, and I think that's sort of intuitive brilliance, right? Um, so that's where that title came from. And then um, I had an organization called Mother Speak. I still have it. Motherspeak.org is the website. Um, and that's where I also share a lot of stories that did not get into the book. Um, so, um, and Mother Speak about war and terror you know, the end terror was a was a counterpoint to the war on terror. Did the experience of talking with so many mothers change you somehow? Absolutely. <laughs> there is no question that it changed me now. How it changed me is debatable. Um, uh, and it changed me in a lot of different ways. Tell us a couple. Well, I met some really extraordinary mothers here in the United States and in those other countries that I visited. Um, uh, because my take on things, which I believe is reflected in your radio show, which is Peace Talks, um, is a little alien to some mothers. I mean, there are a lot of mothers that are very much for their kids going to war. Um, I'm not going to mention any of the, the names of those different groups, but there are a lot of mothers who don't have a problem with it because they believe that it's my country, Uber Alice. You know, uh, I'm not that way. Um, again, I'm an immigrant here, so I don't really feel that way about the country I was born in or this country. I think that there are some things that are more important, which is people. Um, so there's a variety of women, but some of the women that I met, I want to mention uh, Adele, um, who lives up in Oregon. Her daughter, um, Adele, is Jordanian. Uh, she she's from an Arab family and she lives, you know, she was born in this country, but she's from an Arab family. Her daughter, uh, Makisha, was um, in the National Guard in Oregon and she was deployed to Iraq right off the bat when the invasion of Iraq happened. And um, she was there for several months, but again, in the initial invasion, and she later got pregnant um, with, a, with a soldier uh, also. And um, she had a lot of. She was injured in a um, in an explosion and hurt her leg, and eventually was released from military. But the baby was born, and the baby is severely um, physically harmed. It can't hear and it can't speak. 
And they believe that it came about through the toxics of, uh, that, that Makisha was exposed to. But Makisha went to war and she really reached out very much to Iraqis because she felt very comfortable with, um, with Arab people because that's what her land, you know, that's where her people were. She came back to the United States, had this baby, and she slowly has been working her way back. But she was, she hid herself in her house for years. Um, you know, after the baby was born, she just spent all of her time trying to bring up her baby. And her mother, Adele, has been extremely supportive of Makisha, of course, and the grandchild. And they love that child um, to death. You know, it's a it's a beautiful child, just can't talk and it can't hear. Um, so those are the those are the really extraordinary stories where people are left to their own devices after serving. And they have these kinds of things to deal with for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. You know? What was most profound for you in terms of understanding how mothers are affected by war? Well, there's two different levels. Um, it's a very difficult one for me because um, there, I think there are two different levels. Again, there's the people that you know go, well, it's war, you know, these things happen. And then there, there are people that go... Why is there war? We're not going to accept that it's just war. We're going to fight against it as, as long as we can and speak out against it. But I'm speaking to you about how, uh, you know, an instance or overall how having this extraordinary experience of talking to so many um, women, um, you know, what, you know, if you go to a really deep level, what was really profound for you? In, in terms of what the purpose of your book was, to explore how mothers are affected by war? Um, I would say that, I mean, it's really kind of changed and morphed and, and evolved, but at this point I would say that um, there's the level of the individual, you know, people with actual children in the war, and I may feel very differently about it if my son had been maimed and or killed, but um, I think that something that happens is that we need to recognize the humanity of all sorts of people, um, including those that we don't understand or we think are our enemies, you know, and try and melt, uh, melt it down to some essence that is about the um, value of people, <laughs> the value of human beings. That's the really important thing. And that's what has become most important for me is to try and just listen to the story within the story. What is important for other mothers uh, in this circumstance to perhaps help them deal with the conflicts that arise? I, I think that we just need to be really, really careful and really, really critical about the stories we're told about why we go to war. And, um, we really need to look at who is saying we need to go to war. I mean, we all remember, I think, Dick Cheney saying, gee, it's going to be a cakewalk. Um, Ten years after, look at Iraq now. It is a completely devastated country. It is no cakewalk for anybody, them or us. Um, so, and, you know, I, I want to talk about the structure of my book to answer this question fully, too. So each chapter, and there's seven or eight, each chapter is named after the line of poetry, and it's from each of those countries. And in the United States, the line is, um, the chapter title is Brokenheartedness 
um, is The Beginning, and that's by a poet from um, North Beach, Jack Hirschman. And he talks about how you can only become fully human <laughs> after your heart has been broken, and then you begin to really realize what it is to be human, and you begin to act in a different way. And uh, I, I really feel like that is a very important feature here. It's very easy to talk about uh, war and, you know, all of these things that are outside of you until you have that moment when you yourself are, f are fully engaged in why this is happening and you have to go through a period of having your heart broken. And my heart was broken. I'm still recovering from everything I learned uh, through writing this book. And the recovery is a very difficult thing. I'm not saying that I'm anything like what these young people go through when they go to actual war. But the process of um, coming to terms with what happens in war, who's affected and why, is heartbreaking. I think we have to get used to the fact that until we have our hearts broken, we are not capable really in of looking at other people in a in a holistic way well in a sense i think when you're talking about this heart uh, having one's heart broken that in a sense can be the equalizer that brings together and in this case we've been talking mostly about mothers but it's, of course it's not just um, exclusively about mothers that's what brings people to maybe understand one another in the cultures and look at why we're fighting when we don't want everyone's heart to be broken, but it seems that when a a culture, you know, um, goes through a whole lot of death, killing, heartbrokenness, yeah, there's an opportunity there if we can take it to um, maybe think more about what war and peace is and how we come together and that we're all the same because we all, in these circumstances, go through heartbreak. You know, Carol, that's beautiful. Thank you. You put it so much more succinctly. I've been trying to come to terms with it um, in that, put it as, as nicely and as tightly as that. So, yes, the heartbrokenness is uh, an important feature of all of this. And, you know, it takes courage to be brokenhearted. Susan Gallimore is the author of Long Time Passing, Mothers Talk About War and Terror. You can find more links and resources, transcripts, photos, extended interviews, much more about this episode at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where all of the programs in our series are archived dating back to 2002. You can catch our email address there as well. We'd love to hear your feedback on our shows. You can order CDs there, sign up for a free podcast and newsletter, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to help keep Peace Talks Radio on the air. We have our own nonprofit organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated, that survives apart from your local public radio station, thanks to your support. Any donation to our organization helps. Find out how at peacetalksradio.com. Support for the program also comes from the Paul Bartlett Ray Peace Prize, the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Good Radio Show's executive director is Nola Daves-Moses. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.